Welcome to Origins, a podcast about the money behind the money. Created by Notation Capital, sponsored by Sapphire Ventures. Uh, so I'm Nick, partner at Notation Capital. I'm here with... I'm Alex, also partner at Notation Capital. And we are super, super excited to have Chris Duvos, Managing Director at VIA, here with us today. Uh, Thanks for having me, guys. Super excited. Um, Chris, you've been an LP for quite some time now. It's 15 years. 15 years. Um, You're currently Managing Director at VIA. You spent some time at TIFF and uh, and Princeton Endowment. Right. Correct? And, uh, And my understanding is that most importantly, you are from and grew up in Brooklyn, New York. Is that Brooklyn, correct? Yeah. Hey, I spent last night in my childhood bed. I wow. s- went and visited wow. moms. Wow. I still have the Dave Winfield poster and the Cindy Crawford poster up. Um, you know, mom's threatening to take Cindy down, but um, but other than that, it's still my a hermetically sealed shrine to my 14-year-old I self. Think they can't see me give you a high five on the <laughs> podcast, but... <laughs> Um, so where yeah. in Brooklyn did you grow up? Uh, so I grew up in a neighborhood neighborhood called Kensington. So those yep. who are hip to Brooklyn know it's uh, Church Avenue off the F train. And uh, it's uh, the, the Times just wrote an article about, you know, Kensington is probably going to be one of the last neighborhoods to get gentrified. So I feel like I, you know, I'm still, you know, I, Brooklyn is kind of a, a, a blackboard that keeps getting erased and written on over and over. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, we're in the midst of, a, of, a, of a, an awesome kind of, you know, uh, phase in Brooklyn's history. But I feel like I'm from authentic Brooklyn, you know, back with dock workers and cops. And, uh, you know, the kids I grew up with were on the, on the police force. Actually, I'll tell a quick story, very quick. Um, this guy I grew up with and went to school with is now a, a, a policeman. And I got into some shenanigans a while back, and uh, and we were kind of laughing at it. And I, I turned to him and I said, hey, so what if that had happened in New York and you'd caught me, Timmy? And he goes, hey, I would have tuned you up, kid. <laughs> That's the kind of people I grew up with. Nice. So, so I grew up in Cobble Hill, I love Brooklyn. It. Yep. And uh, I often get asked the question, like, man, I, I imagine it's changed so much over the last 15, 20 years. And I'm like, nope. Pretty much exactly the same <laughs> as it is today. <laughs> so it's well, it's Brooklyn, but probably a little different than than uh, than Kensington. It's it was it's pretty funny. I, I should say, you know, I got and there's a longer story about this, but um, uh, I actually got a full scholarship to go to this fancy boarding school. Um, and so, uh, went off to, uh, went off to when I was 14, um, to the school. And when I told people I was from Brooklyn, the, the, literally the first question everybody asked me, so do you know how to steal a car? And, uh, I, I do not, but I know people (laughs) who do. So, um, but, uh, at, at least, you know, on, for the purposes of this recorded broadcast, I'm, uh, I'm, I do not know how to steal a car. Okay. Okay. You'll teach us afterwards. Um, So growing up in Brooklyn, uh, you went to Yale undergrad. Was was the dream always to become a limited partner in venture capital funds? That's a great <laughs> question. Can't imagine. You know, I, I I didn't even know that there was such a job. And right. in fact, to this day, my mom thinks I'm a stockbroker. Right. So um, so it was uh, it was kind of a twisty, turny journey. Um, but actually, what was interesting was I took uh, you know the the kind of standard 
Swenson class at Yale, but this is before Swenson was Swenson. It was uh, actually was part of the economics department. He came in and talked about investing. And one thing he said stuck with me, you know, from 1992 to today. And it's kind of like one of my guiding principles. He said, investing is about optimizing discomfort. And I was like, whoa. And, uh, and he's, you know, he, he, he says, you know, if you're being too safe, if you're doing stuff that's too conventional, right? right you're not, you're not taking on enough risk. You're not doing the kinds of things you need. You know, risk is not a bad word, right? Like you just, it's something you need to be compensated for. And so, um, so that moment kind of turned me on to investing broadly speaking. Um, but then I took a meander through strategy consulting and, uh, and then off to business school. I spent my summer at Morgan Stanley, which was, which was miserable. Um, and then actually, uh, I spent six months at Lehman Brothers. Is that right? Equally miserable. Isn't sure. it? It's, yeah. and you know, and, and I decided like coming back to business school after that summer, I was like, I want to be a principal, not an agent. And, uh, and so, um, you know, kind of stumbled on the Princeton job with some, with some good help. Um, actually my friend Seth Alexander, who was then at the Yale investments office, um, he and I had been in college together. Um, he was telling me about, he's like, you know, being an endowment investor is the closest you'll ever come to having like your own billion dollar fortune. It's an amazing gig because we have low liquidity needs, long horizon, right. few tax headaches, all the great stuff that make endowments such great natural platforms. And he was telling me about this and, and, uh, and, uh, and I got like super stoked. Um, and, uh, and then, you know, there, somebody else I was talking to, it wasn't Seth, but somebody else was like, and the beauty is, you know, the world of LPs, it's changed somewhat and there's some great LPs now, but, but, um, and no disrespect to anybody because there have always been great LPs, but somebody else told me, you know, and, and, uh, and the phrase, may you be blessed with a weak benchmark has never been truer. Cause he's like, you know, relatively smart person with a little bit of unconventional right. thinking, you could be like a knife through butter. And so, so that was like really enticing to me. What got you interested in, uh, in, in venture or private investing? Because, I mean, in, endowments invest in basically every asset class imaginable. Yep. So when you joined Princeton, how old were you? Uh, 28. 28. Um, was the idea like, I really love venture or private equity or a specific area in which I want to spend my time? So, uh, as you can imagine, at Princeton, we had a pretty alternatives focused, uh, portfolio. So a lot of hedge funds, a lot of private equity, um, uh, even back, even back then, even back then, 10, 15 uh, years yeah, ago. Yeah. yeah. So this was, you know, this was to, to level set. It was 2001. And, um, and I spent half my time in hedge funds, um, and half my time in, in private equity. And I went out to California in the winter of 2002 and was immediately enchanted by the sunny and magical land. And it was, you know, this kind of beautiful day and we, we'd, you know, gotten on the plane freezing, gotten off the plane. You're a Brooklyn boy. You're not supposed I, to say that. I know, right? It was, it was actually my first time in California. All right. And so I was like, whoa, this is amazing. And then all these people are talking about all these, you know, amazing companies and, and, uh, and it f in that moment to me was like the very idea of America. Right. Like th this is like innovation and, um, and, you know, kind of throwing aside the past in, 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 you know, in favor of a brighter tomorrow. I was like, wow, this is really amazing. Um, although it was hilarious because the meeting I went out to, the GPs all got up. Now this is February of 2002. The GPs all got up and they're all wearing ties and we're all sitting, you know, in the audience having been told like dress casual. Um, and somebody said, why are you guys wearing ties? And the GP said sheepishly, you know, when we wore ties, we made money. 
We stopped wearing ties. We stopped making money. <laughs> so that was a perfect Alex, encapsulation of Benjamin. We should get ties. <laughs> <laughs> and just for the record, yeah. some of just for some of our listeners, GPs equivalent to VCs. Right. That's right. LPs are the folks that invest in, in venture capital funds like yourself. It's kind of like the <clears throat> Hatfields and the McCoys. Exactly. <laughs> um, so did you consider the full range at that point for, for yourself in terms of from, you know, being a venture investor yourself all the way up the stack? Or did you feel like this is my niche from, from early on? So, so yeah, I, I answered the question without answering it. So I got to Princeton and I was kind of, I wore these two hats. And very quickly, what I found and what was compelling to me was that um, I felt like in our hedge fund portfolio, our managers were fighting to make their piece of a fixed pie as large as it could be. Whereas in the venture portfolio, all, and the private equity portfolio, broadly speaking, our managers were focused on growing the pie. Right. And the piece would be, get correspondingly large. So I, so starting about a year into my time at Princeton, I started focusing on private equity and venture capital. What, what, so that, I think that's a pretty insightful realization at, why thank you. Probably at a relatively young age, right? At a, at a new endowment. Was everybody thinking that or what, 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 what kind of caused that light bulb to go off? I don't know exactly what caused the light bulb to go off, but it's interesting because one of the challenges is in a lot of endowments, I'm not saying this is the way it was at Princeton, but in a lot of endowments, um, you know, venture is almost a second class citizen, mm -hmm. right? And one of the challenges is- And that's that, because what? It's just, it's a much smaller asset class than others and historically it hasn't performed that well. And Actually, the real answer is yeah. people can't figure out how to get their arms around it. Right. And so one of the challenges is if you go to kind of, kind of classical, um, uh, you know, kind of business school slash CFA finance stuff, right? Everybody talks about risk adjusted return in, you know, what they call mean variance space, right? So the way, you know, kind of geek alert, I'm going to geek out for 45 yeah. seconds. So basically, um, you know, basically you plot all the asset classes on a matrix, um, you know, with their expected return and what you think their volatility is going to be. Um, and we use standard deviation as a measure of volatility, which I think is, is really, is, is really silly because it completely, like, as a long-term investor, we actually love volatility, right? Because volatility reduces with the square root of time. So the longer you hold, the less volatility impacts you. So it's even bizarre to think about it in that way, but this is the way that, you know, people have won you know, Nobel prizes, you know, for et cetera. And so it was a hoot because, you know, I'd plot, you know, all the different asset classes, you know, for our, you know, e annual portfolio review. And then I'd put these like goofy asset classes on there, like stamps and baseball cards and right. know, gold, you know, really, really high volatility, very low return. And, you know, people would be like, well, what is this on here for? And I'd get in a little bit of trouble and, and, and we'd laugh about it later. Um, but, but you can't, you know, you can't really plot venture whereas the, the, the hedge fund guys come to you and they're like, oh, well, this fund has whatever sharp ratio and this Sortino ratio and this information ratio. And they have a very rigorous discussion. And then they look down. I mean, this is, this is a real thing. I actually wrote a blog post a long time ago called speak like the locals. And it basically talked about this dynamic, which was, you know, people, you know, in these institutional contexts where you have assets, asset classes competing for scarce dollars. There's a lot of rigor or at least perception of rigor. And then the venture people show up and say, well, this is new. This is exciting. Mm. And that doesn't really fly with, with some of the, you know, kind of more rigor oriented folks. Mm. What do you, what do you think are the right ways to measure 
venture venture funds? Ah, so the, so you know, it, this is a really interesting question because I said something controversial a few years ago. Um, I was the first institutional backer of first round capital, and uh, and I got all these stories about you know Josh K and and uh, and I sitting around in the and this was their first fund. This was even the the pre fund, so the, okay. the friends and family fund. Um, in what in what year was that? So this was this is the FRC 07 okay. annual fund. Okay. Um, and uh, and I said the other day, I said to somebody, you know, first round capital still hasn't proven it. Right. Here's a fund that people think of as the dominant, you know, or a dominant fund, right? And I, I, I think, you know, I would give them my very last dollar, but we're still waiting on Moolah to hit the Kula, right? And and so the challenge is everybody looks at performance, but by the time you actually see the dollars come out that kind of validate the real performance, because you know, especially now, as you guys know, with so much noise in the marketplace in terms of markups and you know goofy companies and the whole unicorn phenomenon just just drives me batty. Um, you know, the, 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 the moolah and the kula is a tangible thing. And that can take. And you're you talking know, about cash on cash for Cash on cash. You know, it's actually really funny. Just a quick detour. I got an email from a guy who raised a fund, a first fund two years ago. And he's had a couple of nice markups in the portfolio. And, uh, and he said, you know, our fund is now sitting at 2.8x cash on cash. And I wrote him back and I said, no, you're sitting at 2.x paper on cash. Right. Right. When you put that moolah in the kula, yeah. then, you know, then we can talk. Um, but, you know, this is the challenge because back to your question, um, performance is a lagging indicator, not a leading indicator. And that's one of the challenges of, you know, that people in my seat have. A lot of people kind of lead with performance. Um, and you know, I can talk later about how I think about funds, but you're, you're almost betting on an idea, right? And, and really, from my seat, you're betting on people. And that's kind of an extra layer of challenge. So I almost view my job as a cross between, you know, a psychologist slash therapist and an investigative journalist, hmm. which when you think about it that way, it's actually a lot of fun. <laughs> ours too. I mean, ours is similar. Who did you, who did you learn the LP business from? Like, so you've been at this for 15 years across a few different firms, Princeton and then TIFF and now yep. VIA. Who do you, I mean, we view this as an apprenticeship business. Yep. We have mentors that are very important to us where we've uh, learned a ton from um, and, and still do every day. Um, who were your mentors as, as an LP? It's, it's really interesting because I've actually thought a lot about this question because I often ask uh, VCs, you know, about their mentors. And then I thought about it. I, I'm like, you know, I'm kind of a, petulant little brat with a chip on my shoulder from Brooklyn, right? Like I, I almost, I almost don't like being mentored, but, but, um, Hey, and I've figured things out on my, on my own and made a lot of mistakes, but that said, I've, see, I have a problem with authority, but I don't, I actually have a problem with mentors as long as they're not my boss. (laughs) Well, long story short, um, great mentors. I've, I've actually had some good mentors who I don't know if they would identify as mentors or, or might not even know who I was. Um, but one obviously is, is Swenson. And, you know, I, 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 uh, took his class in, in, in business school, had, had him teach in, in college. Um, and he's, you know, he really kind of formulated the, you know, the idea in my head of, of optimizing discomfort and doing things that others won't do. Um, that was reinforced at Princeton by two guys I worked with, Andy Golden and Dan Fader. Uh, Andy had worked at Yale under Swenson. 
And, um, and so I feel like a, you know, grandson of Swenson, you know, mm-hmm. kind of part of that diaspora and getting the kind of Hubble space telescope view from Andy about what it was like to be in that Yale investments office in the late eighties was incredible. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Dan was a great mentor because he showed me how to be rigorous around things that were, were, were difficult to be rigorous around how you take qualitative information and turn that into insights. Um, and then later on at, at TIFF, um, David Salem was, an amazing mentor because when I joined TIFF, he said, your mandate is to invest heroically. I want you to invest wow. with courage. And I was like, whoa. Wow. And, uh, and he spent a lot of time, you know, he also was a friend of Swenson's and he spent a lot of time kind of encouraging us to, to, to look for unconventional success. What makes you uncomfortable today? Everything. As an investor, yeah, <laughs> it's it's. A, I mean, in terms in terms of actively seeking discomfort, yeah. In terms of your investment approach, so I'll tell you, I'll answer the question. Uh, I'll answer the question as two separate questions, almost. So, what makes me uncomfortable today is the fact that there are so many new entrants, and the fundamental structure of the entrepreneurial finance market has changed in some ways for the better. Um, and in some ways for the worst. And we've seen a, a ton of, uh, of tourists, I think, come into the space. And it's interesting because I don't know, you guys may know Paul Martino. Um, you know, Martino's done some, some he's work. He's at Open yeah. Capital. Yeah. Really super smart guy. Um, and one of the things he's done is he's looked at kind of venture, you know, periods of, of, I don't want to use the B word, but periods of carbonation, um, over time. And you see a huge number of market entrants going back to the disk drive, you know, bubble of the eighties. Um, and, and you see, the, you know, this real proliferation of funds, but then you see a huge retrenchment as people, you know, leave this, the space. And he's estimated that you'll, you know, the retrenchment that you see is, you know, between 80 and 90%. Wow. And, you know, we see there were 1250 NVCA members in 2000. And today there are what, 125 firms that are quote unquote active. Now, I think that number understates a little bit, but that's, that's another, but that's kind of the, the, the scope of the, the challenge. So today we have what, 250, 300 seed firms. And by the way, there are Attracting too much capital and then in turn putting um, too many companies, you know, into um, into business. And as a result, even good companies are now competing in much more thick spaces that are are more dense with competitors, and, and as a result, are more challenging to in which to to win. Now, the second question is, where am I optimizing discomfort? So as a result, I've you know we've got a great portfolio, you know. Uh, First round, true data collective uh, on the early side and the later side, you know, August and, and Redpoint, some other, you know, great firms. Um, you know, I could, I could name them all. I don't want to, I feel like an, an Oscar speech. I don't want to leave anybody <laughs> out. Um, but uh, that's. How does the song go at the end? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Get the person off the stage. Uh, but that's, so I feel like we've got a lot of the waterfront covered, right? So as a result, I'm looking at things that are kind of really wild and, and wacky and different. So one, one of my big themes for this year is what I call co-creation. So, um, oh. before we, before we hit record on this, um, we were talking about a group, uh, out in San Francisco called Other Lab. And these guys are, are literally from whole cloth kind of creating companies in a warehouse. Um, you know, and, and they're, they're hardware companies. They're, you know, things that are getting DARPA and ARPA e funding. Um, you know, I love the idea of two inventors and a whiteboard. That's the kind of thing that I've got a lot of money for mm. today. 
there are a lot of people that are doing it. You know, you guys are doing some fantastic. Does that does that well. look more like direct investing than 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 an LP? And 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 just to um, give some context, direct investing as in directing investing directly investing into startups, right? As an LP, rather than investing through funds. So that's a very insightful question, and uh, you know, it, this isn't a setup. Um, at the same time that I've had this kind of co-creation hypothesis, we've also gotten very active in co-investments. And um, I find part of the reason- Investing that, alongside the VCs that you invest correct. in into startups. Right? That's correct. Um, so I find that the due diligence is similar for some of these co-creation um, initiatives uh, and, and companies. It's, it's much more similar than perhaps, you know, a company in a classic, uh, venture fund. So, um, and, and by the way, for clarity, a lot of people who, one way in which we differentiate is that we co-invest very early. A lot of LPs come on board late when there's kind of financials and stuff you can sink your teeth into. I love being long technology risk and, you know, if, if something has market risk, you know, I, I don't really love it. And what I mean by market risk is, you know, are they going to compete in a, in a, in a hectic market? I love things where if the company can actually solve successfully the technological, sol- problem, solve the technological right? problem, the market is theirs for the taking. So, you know, we're doing some really interesting stuff in, in material sciences and, and, uh, in kind of novel, you know, kind of software things and, and what have you. And that's actually, that actually feels very similar to this kind of co-creation stuff, right? What, what is it that, you know, what is this technology that you're looking to kind of offer to the world? And so that's, it's, it's, it's much more interesting, I think, on a, on a conceptual level. And also personally, it's much more fulfilling because there's just so much friggin' noise in the market right now. Mm, right. So, so just to get back to the co-creation stuff a little bit. So by that, you mean you're investing in companies that are potentially creating not just technologies, but companies themselves. Right. So a bit like a studio model in some sense. It, yeah. um, but but how do you see what what other lab is doing as different from the sort of proliferation of accelerators and incubators and and company creation studios and quotes, et cetera? So there's definitely uh, there's definitely a proliferation. It's definitely similar. What you know, kind of what I'm advocating is is similar to the studio approach. And I think that there's some studios that are kind of really interesting. What I love about other labs specifically, and and I think this is generically true for the stuff I like, is I believe in energy, right? And energy kind of you know it's it's like uh, the. Uh, in California, the the laws of of physics are are, are backwards, right? And uh, and it's it's the opposite of Newton's second law. Like energy dissipates, right? Um, but uh, but when I look at things like other lab and I see the types of people that are attracted to the types of people who are there, um, I see this this real kind of uh, creative tumult. And uh, and the Greeks used to talk about agon agon actually means competition right and and when people compete they they get um they get better and kind of create uh create new things and and i think that you know there's this i am not saying that there's competition but there's this kind of force that creates this dynamism and, and i i say california and, and i you know it's certainly true here in new york and and in other hubs uh of innovation. thanks for that <laughs> I, I got you appreciate that um feel the love um it, it's for sure true um you know, I just think it's it's got its fullest articulation in California, um, but uh, 
but I see stuff here in New York and and uh, and elsewhere that that you know similarly kind of magnetizes energy and creates this kind of and it's like almost one of these like Marvel superhero movie villains that like you know knocks over the power plant and all of a sudden they're stronger right like, like mm-hmm. that's that's what I see when I see mm-hmm. other lab mm-hmm. yeah so I have a question just to take a step backwards for a minute. So you were uh, first investor in first institutional investor in first round. Um, what other funds were you f- like really first institutional money in? So uh, I was the first uh, investor in O'Reilly Alpha Tech. Okay, um, we were we were the first investor more recently in Data Collective. Okay, um, uh, the first in- institutional investor in Lemnos Labs. Um, my partners uh, before I joined VIA were the f- among the f- very first investors in True, so we loved doing stuff like that. I was involved in in we weren't the first investors strictly speaking, but we were involved at, when I was at TIFF in uh, in Floodgates first. Uh, then it was still Maples Investments, but right. what became Floodgates first fund. Um, and so it's been it's been a lot of fun. So my sense is there will be a lot of uh, newer. GPs or VCs listening to this um, that are maybe on fund zero or one or two or three. Um, what was it about those particular funds and and the GPs at those funds that got you over the line? Because, you know, there are lots of emerging managers that hear the sounds sounds interesting, let's chat in two years, four years, whenever. What were the key um insights that you saw yeah. that that compelled you to make that first institutional investment. And was it insights or was it more the people themselves that you thought you saw something in them? So it, uh, it's more the latter, but we'll get to that in a second. I'm going to, I'll take a step back and, and yeah. tell a little story. So one of the things that I think was, is really interesting, I think this is instructive for all the people who are now thinking about raising funds. Um, one of the things that's, that was instructive to me in, in, in my kind of evolution as an investor was hearing that the, the way the Yale Investments Office built its portfolio in the 80s, right, as a real kind of pioneering um, institution. Uh, I, I once asked somebody, I said, you know, was it really hard to build a portfolio in those early days? And they said, no, to the contrary, it was actually really easy because there just weren't that many GPs, there weren't that many funds. You figured out what you wanted. You met with everybody who was doing it. You could pretty quickly tell who was legit and who was a pretender. You sorted out the clowns, and you basically did the top third or the top half right. of the whole universe. Right. And right. so that was, if we if we go back in time, that was maybe there were, I don't know, 30 or 40 funds, and you yep. met with all of them, and you chose Sequoia and Kleiner. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. And by the way, you chose, of the 30 or 40, you chose 15. Right. And of those 15, Sequoia and Kleiner were among them. 13 may have been horrible, right? There was incredible option value. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. Were, were, and you were able to get into those funds, you think, at that well, time, this, maybe 15, 20 years ago. I mean, this, for, for context, or, this is probably 1985. Okay. Talking, so 30 right? years so this ago. This is right, a long, long time ago. ago. Right. Right. So now here's, so why did I tell the story? Um, what's interesting to me then is here I am sitting at TIFF in 2005, and I've got David Swens, David Salem on one shoulder telling me to invest heroically. And I'm, I'm like spending all this time with entrepreneurs because part of the way that I do the voodoo that I do is I spend time with entrepreneurs to understand they're the primary source. I was a history major in college, right? So I know two things. I know good cocktail party conversation and I know how to search primary sources, right? And the way I felt like the way we did diligence at Princeton and they're smart guys. They're going to make 
always going to make a ton of money. But the way we did diligence is we'd run up and down Sand Hill Road and ask people, you know, who's good? Mm. Um, and we'd get, you know, this warmed over conventional wisdom. Right. Mm-hmm. And so I made this rule for myself. For every hour I spent with a GP, I wanted to spend an hour with an entrepreneur. And so, that, that they've worked with specifically? N- n- just random, random oh, okay. entrepreneurs. Okay. So like, for instance, the, the first time I heard first round was – um, Yale Alumni Mag did this thing about the Yale Entrepreneurial Society and the guys from Video Egg were on the cover of the magazine. And I'm like, oh, I'm going to call these guys. And I showed up on a Friday afternoon on Howard Street in San Francisco with a case of beer. And the, the four of us sat there, you know, for, for a few hours and, uh, and talked about, you know, who, which of their investors they liked, which they didn't, et cetera, et cetera. And, and they said, you know, we, and I said, look, guys, it feels like, the fundamentals of entrepreneurial finance are changing. This was before anybody, you know, was using the phrase lean startup. I mean, it was all, right. this was all bubbling at that time, but it was this amazing moment, right? Because all of a sudden I had this insight that the whole venture industry was wrong footed, right? And I could have been completely wrong about that, but, um, but, uh, I said to these guys, I said, so who gets this stuff? And they said, well, Tim O'Reilly gets it, hmm. you know, th- three or four other people. And then these guys out of Philadelphia, Josh and Howard, Wow. And boom, right there, wow. you know, wow. I got back. The first thing I did was I called, I called Josh. Um, and you know, it was awesome because Tiff was headquartered in Philly at the time. Um, and so I, uh, I, you know, we met at the Conshohock and Marriott, which was halfway between our offices, which meant I had a 10 minute walk. Um, and, and the rest is, is history. But the reason I tell the story is it harkens back to that moment in 1985 when Yale was doing a third of the funds that it met. Uh, or at least, you know, that, uh, so the story goes. Because in that moment, in 2005, 2006, in that first flourishing, everybody I met with at that mm. time, you look back and say, today, those guys were awesome. You know, people I did, you know, first round, and, and IA was another one here in New York, um, where I was a big investor in the first fund. Um, uh, you know, Floodgate, et cetera. And things we didn't do, like Felicis and Clavier and all these, you know, all these folks. Um, and in fact, it's actually, you know, the, the, well, the, there's a whole nother story about that, but that's too long. Um, <laughs> but, uh, long story short, we'll get you to tell that one of the that, next one on the next episode. Um, uh, you couldn't miss. And today I feel like it's exactly the opposite, right? Now I hear about, um, you know, there, there are, you it'd probably take more than one hand to count the number of fund of funds that are looking at, uh, you know, emerging or, or micro managers and they're all smart people. Um, you know, they're 250 micro funds. So, you know, people are going to, going to find stuff, but it feels to me like, you know, the, if, if the party's not over, it's about the time when the lights are kind of coming up mm. and, uh, and, you know, people are, are being asked to clean, you know, help clean up a little bit. What were the, what were the things about Josh or some of the other VCs that you saw at the time? I mean, aside from the fact that, they had amazing references from founders. Yeah. You went and met with him or you went and met, met with some of these folks that were running the funds. And what were like the, the key couple things that you were like, Oh my God, I've, I've got to work with these folks. Yeah. So uh, a, a couple of things. So I'm going to answer this question in two ways. And one fully answers the, you know, kind of what my process is, which gets to the, the people mm-hmm. question. And then don't let me forget the platform kind of idea. Mm-hmm. Um, so in terms of uh, my own process, it's kind of a four-part uh, analysis. So first, I need to understand the people. You know, do they have some particular edge or kind of novel way of looking at the world? You know, how is it that they're distinctive and special in particular? Now, this is you know, really challenging 
in a world where everybody's you know differentiated. We get to hang out with some of the smartest people on on Earth. Um, you know, half of Sand Hill Road has 150 IQ, right? And and the rest have 140 IQs. So we get to hang out with some really smart people, but understanding kind of their particular value proposition, um, you know, as investors is really is, is where I spend most of my time. And and as a result, um, you know, this gets into the kind of you know psychologist slash therapist aspect mm-hmm. of 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 the voodoo that I do. Um, the second important thing is understanding the strategy. Now, I don't have any wisdom on, you know, are we talking, you know, whether we're talking clean tech or nano or, you know, today it's, you know, AR, VR or AI. Like, yeah. I don't necessarily have any wisdom on that. Um, but rather, I, what I'm looking for is, is there a resonance between the people and the strategy they've pursued? And you'd be surprised at how often, you know, people just aren't good fits for the strategy they've they've pursued. Um, One of our first blog posts, actually, just after we launched, was about uh, VC market fit. So yeah. everybody talks about, we often talk about founder market fit. Yep. Um, and uh, one of the reasons that we run Notation the way we yeah. do is because it fits our skills and our right. background. And, and I remember that blog post. It, it, it kind of spoke right to this question. The third, uh, you know, leg of the evaluation stool is, uh, is portfolio. And the portfolio is the people and the strategy in action. And you can go and visit the companies and understand. And that's where I like to spend most of my time. Um, and that's where you get the most insight into, into folks. And then the last piece is, you know, out of the portfolio will fall performance. But again, as I said before, it's a lagging indicator, not a leading indicator. Um, so, you know, just getting to know some of these folks in, in those moments, right. And, and, uh, and really drilling down on what makes them distinctive. And, and at the time there was, you know, a lot of open field running in terms of the strategy and, it, you know, there was just such a resonance that it almost felt magnetic to me. Mm. But then how, why did I choose first round over soft tech, right? And the soft tech's done fantastically well, et cetera. Um, but first round, so, so this actually was my second insight, which is I worried that individual GPs would be overmatched by the market, right? I thought, I thought that there would just be too many companies, too many, you know, just too much to do, too many, you know, kind of pressures on their time. And so Josh and I were sitting around, you know, we were meeting monthly in the Conchoc and Marriott for breakfast and before you invested, before we invested, right? I, I knew Josh probably a year and a half or two years before we invested, and then we invested in the in the annual fund um, FRC07, and then uh, and then we invested in a big way in FRC2, which which is was the first institutional fund. Um, but it was interesting because Josh was talking about this vision yet he, he at the time he was calling it Napster for venture, right? How do you push? The, you know, the, the creation of content, the, the value out to the edges of the network, right? You've got all these amazing entrepreneurs and CEOs. And how do you capture that knowledge without being a bottleneck, right? So how do you make it a peer to peer thing? So this today we call the first round platform, right? And so Josh was sitting there and, and I go, wow, it sounds like you're trying to build a Koretsu. And he goes, ah, a Koretsu is too, you know, too weird. Sounds too John Doerr. And I go, and this is, you know, my own like yeah. moment, you know, this will go on yeah. my tombstone. Um, I go, what you're really talking about is platform as community. And Josh goes, yes. And, you know, so today, if you go into first round's offices, they have these big things to say, you know, kind of platform is crossed out in spray paint. And it says community below. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that was my kind of present at the creation moment, not to be rah, rah, me, but, um, but, uh, that's legit. It was, it was, it was such a, it was almost as if, the earth kind of, you know, twisted on its axis a little bit. Cause I was like, 
this is exactly what these funds need to arm themselves against the slings and arrows of the market. Yeah. Right? And now every fund obviously is hiring for that role, even though it's not really a role, right? It's a whole philosophy behind, right. them, behind and, how and, to run and, a firm. Right. And this is what I call the Stephen Bochco effect, right? Like Stephen Bochco, like, and what I mean by that is like Bochco has like these edgy TV shows that, um, that drive censors crazy, but they, they are able to survive on TV because they're art and they're artfully done. So like you have NYPD Blue, which is this amazing, gritty, realistic show. And you know, you see people's butts on there all the time, right? But the problem is then once the barrier is broken, then you have the flood of the, you know, the pretenders. And so you go straight from, you know, Hill Street Blues and NYPD Blue to, uh, to Temptation Island and the Real Housewives, right? And so this is the problem, right? You know, I, I always say Brett Burson is like the MVP of the venture business. And Josh yells at me every time I say that because he says, now nah, I got to give him a raise every time you say that. <laughs> um, but what he's done with the platform team at FRC is incredible. And anybody who doesn't know the FRC platform should get to know it because it's really powerful. And, and then I hear, you know, half the journalists I know are interviewing because people seem to think it's like a journalist job are interviewing for a kind of director of platform jobs. And I, there has to be kind of, it has to be in the DNA and the fabric of the firm, right? Be what you are, be authentic to yourself. And FRC's yeah. authenticity is, uh, is in the platform. You guys have a great authenticity as well, but it's not in a platform dynamic, right? So there are, there are different things. Now I'll tell you the flip side of that. And I'm just ranting now, but, um, the flip side of this is, I was so focused on platform that I probably missed a lot of really good things, mm. right? Um, right. I was. My next question was going to be, what's the most interesting fund you think right now, or maybe previously that 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 you missed? Yeah, and, and there and there's a ton of them. I mean, and I was so it's actually funny because um, or the most interesting fund now that you want to be an investor in that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's it, you know it's interesting because I'll, I'll give an example because it it actually turned out okay in the end. Um, but I spent so much time at, when I was at TIFF, now we're 2007, 2008, talking about platform and how, you know, uh, how important that is to help these, you know, come, you know, these, these venture firms, excuse me, punch above their weight. Um, and then I spent all this time with Steve Anderson at Baseline and I loved Steve and I brought Steve to the, uh, you know, to, to the, to the committee, and somebody said, you're being hypocritical. Hmm. You know, you spent all this time talking about platform and now you've got a guy. And as a result, I got shut down on baseline, which turned out to be a fantastic fun Instagram oh. and, and Heroku and all these great things. Now, the good news is that I took that capital and reallocated it back to first round so that hmm. there was a, you know, th th that turned out okay. But that really kind of made me gun shy with respect to what I call today Lone Rangers, right? Which is, which is kind of more classic venture where you have individuals who are, you know, kind of going out and doing the voodoo that they do and doing it well, but without the kind of posse of a platform. Um, yeah. So we, I mean, we, we not struggle, but we, we think about this all the time in terms of through the lens of when to be opportunistic and when to really focus on the core bread and butter of our model and our strategy and, uh, and how to balance those two things. I mean, it sounds like that's kind of a similar challenge, right? I've struggled with this right. for years. Um, now we've gotten more active in, uh, you know, we've actually got a vehicle that invests in 
you know, non what I call platform entities. Uh, and that's, it's been liberating to have that because there's a lot of good investors out there. Right. In fact, I'll, I'll tell you. So like, it's like your opportunity fund, so in to a speak. Sense, right? right. So, so the challenge is, right. If it works, it's called, op- you know, opportunity. If it doesn't work, it's called style drift. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. And we, you know, we won't be able to tell, you know, without the, you know, fullness of time. But, um, you know, and that's a tension that, you know, we as LPs have, right? Like when, when our managers start doing new things, right. But you want your, managers to evolve, right? Because markets evolve. And so, you know, but, but then we've seen so many people evolve in, in unproductive ways, um, that, you know, but again, it goes back to this kind of, you know, you guys, I think have, I've said it before, you have a great authenticity about yourselves. And I think there are a lot of people who are inauthentic about kind of what they're doing. And as a result, they do things that maybe aren't consistent with what an authentic vision of themselves and what they're doing might have right them do so to switch angles a little bit um this podcast is a part of an exploration of the lp world we found it to be way more opaque and hard to navigate than we originally expected <laughs> yep. um, you've been an active blogger which is very rare in the lp world for how long a decade yeah um why don't more LPs blog? Why don't more LPs market themselves? And why are you still one of just a handful that's actually doing that? It seems. Yeah, it's it. You know, it's funny because the blog started as a way to educate GPs because I was hearing so often from these VCs. You know, we, basically what you guys are doing. You know, actively now. You know, was what I was trying to accomplish implicitly, you know, 10 years ago by kind of posting these insights into tradecraft. Because quite frankly, I was sick and tired of these GPs coming in right. and not knowing anything about what we did and, and kind of, you know, it's like, I, I always say like, if entrepreneurs treated GPs in their pitch the way GPs treat LPs, the, the GPs would have a fit. They'd throw these people right out of the room, right? There's, there's no know your customer, et cetera. So I wanted to kind of create this transparency to help people understand. So first of all, that they would, you know, we'd have more, pro- I'd have more productive discussions, but also so, so GPs could, you know, have more. Productive and also maybe save yourself a hell of a lot of time if it's totally. not even close to a fit going in. Totally. Right. So, and it was funny because, you know, I, I brought this up with Josh, who at the time was a pioneer, um, GP blogger. And, uh, and Josh said, yeah, I, I think it's a good idea. CD, you're, you're probably about as smart as the next guy, but you can be at least 15% funnier. So it was awesome because it was a lot of fun to like kind of develop this voice. Right. right? And, uh, and the voice actually. And what is typically a pretty dry community. Right. 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 So to kind of to your broader question, why don't more people do it? Um, you know, it's interesting because I don't think a lot of people perceive it as valuable. And what I mean by that is I don't think a lot of LPs kind of think about their brand. Um, All right. Do you get do you get feedback from the LP community of why are you doing this? Why are you wasting your time? Or, you know, the, do, do you get pushback? So um, maybe more. It's really, it's really bimodal, right? Like mm-hmm. there are a bunch of LPs that are super supportive. In fact, um uh, I very frequently get a lot of 
you know, positive comments um, straight off. There's a bunch of LPs who just think it's it's me grandstanding right. and being like a you know a smug punk mm. or um, or a dis- at best a, just a distraction yeah. and a waste of time. Right, right, right. And, and so and I, and so I'll say and you know by the way the way, the blog is it's super LP right and people right. are like oh you know what a vision you have of yourself that you're uh, <laughs> and and really like the joke is my buddy Du Chai who was then at Northwestern Sindowman and now he's at Fun to Fun's Horsley Bridge, you know, I wear these red t-shirts every day and do saw me at a meeting. We were on this like week long, you know, trip in Europe and I was out of clean white shirts. So I wore one of the red shirts that I was going to wear on, on it. And he looks at me as I walk into the meeting and says, what's with the red shirt? Is that your super LP underoos? <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and boom, a, a, you know, a nickname was born. Right. Um, but yeah, uh, it, it's, it's, uh, it's been awesome though, because it's, it, it really attracts GPs in a way that's, that's a very engaging, right? I feel like right off the bat, I have more uh, constructive and substantive discussions. Right. And so I almost don't care, you know, about whether people, you know, kind of love it or hate it, you know, and the, the line I always try to draw is edgy, but not scary. Um, you know, and, and there are a lot of posts that I want to write, you know, that there is a lot of, you know, despite the, the kind of idea of alignment of interests, um, you know, there's a lot of tension between LPs and GPs. And there are mornings when I say, like, I'm going to write this blog post and just piss all over everybody. And everybody. But you can't do that, right? Because A, it's not constructive. And B, it, it's, you know, it's out there. It's out there, right? Right. Um, I don't know if that answered the question. but Do you think, it seems like more, there's definitely a trend towards the LP world in terms of becoming more transparent, beginning to blog more and be more available and approachable for new VCs or existing VCs. Yeah, um, and maybe so, maybe a part of that. I'm just thinking. Yeah, yeah. Maybe a part of that is the fact that there's a lot more direct tap investing happening in the LP world. So LPs are now directly investing into startups. They're more closely connected to the actual founders of the right. startups, and maybe that's encouraging them to become more more transparent. It could be. Um, it could be. But I, I'll say that you know, could one, be sounds like no. You're wrong. Well, <laughs> yeah. I, the short answer is I, I don't know why people are being more transparent yeah. because you know I'm not inside their heads. One reason that people don't do it is it's crazy time consuming, mm. and it's also very vulnerable, right? Like it's it's a vulnerable thing to kind of say something and you know kind of put it out there. Sure. Um, and, you know, I cloak it in, you know, in an armor of humor, but, um, but, you know, you're taking a stand, right? And, you know, you, I, I've written stuff that's wrong, but it's still up on the blog, right? right? Um, and in the, you know, in the fullness of time, but, um, Fred Wilson has a, a has a nice, uh, justification of that in the sense that, um, he often talks about how he learns through his blog. Yeah. And it might be wrong, it might be right, but he, because of the community there, he actually gets smarter through it. it it's, it's, it's an amazing insight because I feel like I've learned so much by blogging and met so many people by blogging. Um, even, you know, even today, I, and I used to blog really frequently, like, you know, 07, 08, 09, 10, that was like the heyday. Now it's kind of fallen off. Um, I'm putting up something every few months. Um, but I want to do it more, right? And and not because, you know, I, I feel like I need a megaphone, but because everything I put out, you know, the energy you put out is the energy you get yeah. back. So when you put stuff out, you're getting you, you get you get it back in spades. And I love that. I wish I had the time, but I'm, you know, I'm trying to figure out how to make more time for it. So there's this Michael Deering tweet that we saw recently. I'll get the exact tweet that says, you know, every founder should know uh 
who their VCs LPs are mm-hmm. and uh, and where their VC is currently marking their right uh, their uh, their equity. Um, how important do you think it is as if we believe that the ecosystem be- begins to become more transparent? How how important, if at all, do you think it is for founders to understand the capital sources of the of their of their vent of their VCs? So, I think it's important. Although, although I'll, I'll add a, an asterisk to that, and let's let's start with kind of why is that important? It's important because at the end of the day, you know, a venture capital firm is a service provider, and its customer is the entrepreneur. But that service provider has shareholders, and the shareholders are the LPs. Um. As a result, the shareholders can sometimes revolt, as we see in public companies, right? And they can, you know, get crabby and whatever, right. and that might, in, you know, uh, uh, impact the flow of capital to the to the portfolio companies. You know, usually in practice, the reason there's an asterisk is in practice, what it means is once a fund's raised, the capital there is sort of permanent. Um, and you, as an entrepreneur, don't have to worry about it because the fund hopefully is reserved and et cetera for subsequent rounds. But, uh, but the, you know, the, the LPs, if they get crabby, just won't participate in a subsequent fund. Right. Now that could have an impact because maybe the GPs then scatter because they've got to find new jobs or, or what have you. So there's, you know, but that's all secondary and tertiary effects. But what happens is we see sometimes in times of real stress, and an example is the 08 downturn. Um, what you'll see is LPs get really crabby and try to do some work to curtail the, mm. you know, the investments of the fund. Even current funds. Even existing funds. Right. So that's one thing that we saw in 08 is a bunch of people were way out, a bunch of LPs were way out over their skis. Um, and I could tell stories for days, but, um, but they would go to GPs and say, look, you just raised a $400 million fund last year. Uh, we want you to cut that fund size in half. Wow. wow. And so now all of a sudden that throws everything into tumult, everything from the GP's kind of business model. And, you know, if it's a Sand Hill firm, you know, now they've got to worry about, can they make the payments on their G5? Um, sorry, I got a right. slap on the wrist. <laughs> um, but, uh, but we even, don't have too many of those in Brooklyn. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Sense. Floyd Bennett field, yo. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but anyhow, uh, but more profoundly than, uh, that changes the sphincter of capital, right? With which, you know, the, 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 you know, the dollars kind of fall on, you know, on, on companies in subsequent rounds. And so that's a, that's a danger and it's, it's definitely, um, definitely worth, but, but, you know, the, the challenges and the reason I would take a little bit of issue with the tweet, as you've kind of described it is at the end of the day, one of the things that's frustrating to me is that the capital once raised is permanent you know, kind of right. contractually permanent. It's right. not like the public markets where people can exit, right? right. Um, or hedge funds or something. Right. Right. And there's, something a, else. there's a, right. you know, kind of a secondary market that comes and goes. But this is a challenge. You're signing up by, the, you know, these funds are typically 10-year partnerships with several extensions, usually at the GP's discretion. You're signing up for a vehicle that lasts twice as long as the average American marriage, right? Think about right. that for a second. And so what's the old line? You know, marry in haste and repent at leisure, right? So, but the problem is a lot of people, there's so much, the biggest defining characteristic of LP world is FOMO, 
right? Everybody's afraid of missing out. So people will pile into things. And then by the way, there's another thing that people don't talk about is there's crazy turnover among LPs. And I don't say that to kind of sling arrows mm-hmm. because here I am 15 years into it and I'm on my third, you know, right. kind of third place and my last, but, um, but you know, I, I know endowments that have had in the 15 years, seven different, uh, heads of private equity. So there's constantly a new sheriff in town. I mean, how aggravating is that? If that's a cornerstone investor for you, it's, it's, right. it's going to create stress. And all of a sudden now you're ta- I want my GPs a hundred percent focused on building their companies and, you know, generating deal flow. And now if you've got them like, you know, pitching the new sheriff and, 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 you know, singing for the supper, you know, again, you start getting like real distractions right. and, and taking time away from the important Do you think side. it's fair for founders to ask a, ask a VC, Hey, I want to know who your LPs are. I think it's fair. I also think it's fair for me to ask what the, you know, economics of the management company are mm. at a at a right. at a fund. Right. But I sometimes get a thank you no. Right, right, right. Um, I mean, in addition, around the the sources of capital, in addition to the kind of stability of those sources, I think that for for a lot of founders, there's also the question of. Um, maybe alignment in the sense of, you know, when I'm trying to look back through all of the entities through which capital trickles down to me, uh, I want to know who some of the original sources are in terms of, you know, alignment with my moral or ethical viewpoints and, and ultimately who is my labor benefiting. Yep. Um, and, and that's a, that's a tougher question, yeah. but, but curious to hear your take on that as well. Cause, cause we've heard it some and, and they're, you know, certainly investors who who disagree strongly about whether that transparency is important and and whether founders should care from that point of view. But it's an interesting question. Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting because we definitely pulled that card. You know, when we were at Princeton, right? Uh, right. We we were our money was greener, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, at TIFF as well because we've worked with nonprofits and you know, and the funds that uh, that we manage now are predominantly nonprofits. Um, I think it's important for for people to feel um, to feel like their work is supporting some greater mission. But at the end of the day, as an entrepreneur, you know, if you make if you make the kind of money that you know you could make, you should be able to support those you know mm-hmm. those interests on your own. Mm-hmm. And you know, I mean, look, I, I went to Yale not once but twice. If I if I had a startup, and uh, and uh, the GP that backed me had you know was backed predominantly by the Harvard Endowment. Um, you know, that would dismay me, but, uh, wow. But <laughs> wow. Nice. Um, but I would get over it. Right. Um, so I think we should end there. Um, really, really appreciate you, uh, chatting with us for the past hour. And, uh, I think, um, I think our listeners, VCs and, uh, and founders are going to really appreciate it too. So no, thank you guys. Thanks for having a lot. Me awesome. Anybody can always reach out to me anytime. I, I used to do office hours, but, mm-hmm. uh, but I generally have an open door policy. So anybody who wants to come visit, I'm in Palo Alto at the downtown creamery all the time. Nice. And, and find, you, find you online. And find, and find you online. at superlp.com. Superlp.com right? yeah. and, uh, and Twitter at CDOVOS, C-D-O-U-V-O-S. Awesome. Thanks again, Chris. Thank, Thank you, you guys. This podcast was created by Nick Charles and Alex Lyons partners at Notation Capital. We'd like to thank our friend Sapphire Ventures for sponsoring this debut series. Sapphire Ventures is a global venture capital firm that invests in growth stage technology companies as well as early stage venture firms across the technology landscape. 
Sapphire Ventures shares our desire to bring transparency and candor to the venture ecosystem. We're very grateful to be collaborating with them on this project. We'd also like to thank Ben Glowey, who is our amazing audio engineer. You should work with him. You can find Ben on Twitter at visible underscore sound. Finally, we'd also like to thank our friends at Mattermark who are helping us with distribution and making an amazing product. You should try it, mattermark.com. 